Financial Executives Podcast. At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, when the American economy experienced disruptions unlike ever before, industries and businesses alike were forced to pivot, adapt, and respond accordingly. For the consumer credit industry, the pandemic had wide-reaching impacts. As part of our longer ongoing forward-thinking series, I am exceptionally excited to be joined by Mr. David Fabricant, Senior Vice President and Deputy Controller at American Express. Before we deep dive into this topic and our conversation today, David, can you walk us through your career background and explain to us how you've managed to find yourself a home at American Express? Sure, Shamani, thank you. And Janine, thank you for that. Glad to be here with you guys today and have this discussion. Um, my career is an interesting one. I call it somewhat of a unicorn career journey because right out of school, I decided for various personal reasons not to go straight into public accounting, even though I got an accounting degree. Back then, I was told you either do public accounting or you can't be successful at the senior levels. By successful, I now realize it meant those people that were telling me I had to go into public accounting. It was them that they were reflecting on. So I set my GPS 28 years ago in 1994 to be a successful accountant. Sounded pretty simple at the time. I worked for three private companies right out of school across hospitality, hotel lodging, and professional consulting. Over the first six years of my career, I moved around. I moved locations from Houston to Dallas. I moved up through a range of different accounting roles. Most importantly, though, I realize now I had, although I didn't realize it at the time, I had senior leaders in those controllers groups uh, that believed in my potential before I, I even saw it in myself. And they invested in me when I was there. And actually, from time to time, I still keep in touch with some of them. I credit those diverse range of companies and roles that gave me really the essentials. I cut my teeth, if you will, hands-on experience to know that my GPS was pointed in the right direction. Because in 1999, I made a pretty significant move to Citigroup. It was actually the associates at the time based in Dallas. It was a financial services company shortly acquired by Citigroup. So I call it Citigroup. And I started as a VP accounting operations controller in their credit card group. I did that for about four years and then was able to make an internal change uh, and land an SVP controller role for City Financial Mortgage, still based in Dallas. So two different types of asset classes within Citigroup family. After about two years in that role, still based in Dallas, I decided if I wanted a shot at the big time controller roles, I probably needed to pick up my family and move to New York where many of the large financial services companies were based, including Citigroup, still is. So in early 2006, I relocated to New Jersey and joined AIG as their consumer finance group controller. This was the banking arm of AIG, separate from the insurance arm. Uh, And this banking arm had banks all across the world. It was internationally based business uh, supporting insurance customers. I remained at AIG until early 2011. And shortly after the financial crisis, as you can imagine, for many reasons, decided it was time to make a change. Going back to my GPS, which I wanted to stay true to, I set my sights on senior level controller roles at large banks or financial institutions and made a list and started my search. American Express was kind of at the top, but, it didn't, but I didn't know actually how to get in at the more senior levels. 
So I tapped my external network, learned a little bit about the company, about the roles available and out there. Uh, but I found it very difficult uh, to find the senior roles that were publicly known from the outside. So I turned to LinkedIn, which, by the way, at the time was only in existence for 10 years. This wasn't used nearly the way it is today. And I focused and dialed in on my profile. I researched keywords, phrases that would hopefully get me noticed. Because I did know that the senior jobs were most likely with the recruiter. That, that was my assumption. And sure enough, a recruiter called me about a senior controller role in American Express, uh, running, uh, leading the, um, con- the global consumer uh, set of controllers group. And I was able to land that role in early 2011. And I've been here ever since. That's my journey in short. Um, has a lot of twists and turns to it. But that's how I got to where I'm at. David, I have to say it's really refreshing to hear someone of your stature talk about how they landed their role through um, LinkedIn. I don't often hear that, but it's um, reassuring and refreshing to hear that a lot of senior executives find that tool useful as well. But on the topic of focusing and dialing in on your profile, I want to focus and dial in on your career background, specifically at uh, AIG. You were at AIG during the 2008 financial crisis. What lessons did you learn from that experience and how can it be applied to financial executives navigating the current volatile economy? Well, that was certainly an interesting time to say the least. Shivani, what I didn't mention as I was kind of going through that progression is that in July of 2008, just a couple of years after I joined in their New York headquarters as a controller for the Consumer Finance Group, the CEO of the division asked me to move and relocate to Hong Kong to be the CFO of the Asia Pacific region for the group. This is not something that I had anticipated was in my career track. It was a diversion to the GPS, if you will. Uh, But when I thought about it and harvesting all of my past experience and getting a life experience living internationally and understanding how business works outside of the U.S., I took a shot at it and made the move. Only on reflection did I realize that there were some early signs of stress already in the marketplace in July of 2008. Just so happens three months after coming into the role. I was faced with the most seismic and unprecedented challenge for my company, my colleagues, my businesses, my business partners, my customers, and myself. And that was what you refer to as a 2008, 2018 financial crisis. So, you know, the lessons learned uh, are lifelong to me. And uh, when I came out on the other end and reflected back, it was extremely enriching and rewarding to go through it, especially given it was AIG, but here's what I remember the most. Always, no matter what, do the right thing. We always tell ourselves do the right thing and and deep down we all feel like we do. But in times of extreme stress, you can sometimes be asked or guided to do things that, that may make logical sense, but when you really step back and think about it, don't. And so I learned to say no on some things that weren't right. Uh, even though it seemed logical, they weren't going to, they ultimately wouldn't have been the right thing to do. And I said no to those. So always, no matter what, do what's right. 
Uh, don't assume people that you looked up to can handle it. There were certainly some senior leaders in the company that I put on a big time pedestal, really inspiring. But when the crisis hit, uh, they didn't hit the mark in my book and other leaders rose to the challenge. So the people that uh, you look to for guidance, always keep your aperture expanded and wide because other leaders can always step up and continue that inspiration. Stay committed to the end. Uh, this is one where I had a personal stake that I wanted to see this division to its conclusion. Uh, so about a year after the financial crisis, I relocated back to New York. I was supposed to be there for five years and it ended up being one year. Uh, and I helped wind up the division. So I saw it through the end. That felt really good. Be vulnerable, especially in times of crisis. I shed some tears with my colleagues and leaders when I was in Hong Kong because we really didn't know what was going to happen. You have to be vulnerable. Balance hope with reality. Uh, I always tried to give hope but also have a sense of really reality and what we were staring down. Didn't always have the right set of facts to do that, but I tried to put the best judgment around it that I could. And finally, um, never take liquidity for granted. <laughs> liquidity at companies, your own personal liquidity. Uh, AIG learned the hard way and so did many other financial institutions and companies to never take liquidity for granted. It can dry up in an instant. And that's actually what happened at AIG. It dried up in 24 hours. So those are the five, six things that I remember the most going through the financial crisis, living abroad in Hong Kong. It's so refreshing to, I will say, it's so refreshing to hear you talk about your international experiences living abroad and kind of how much that taught you, not just about business outside of the United States, but kind of just these life skills that you've been able to adapt and kind of bring with you into each role that you've taken into that you've gone to after AIG. I do yeah, have a follow up question. Absolutely. I just uh, the follow up to that is, is, you know, you have to flex different leadership muscles when you're actually living in a different country and different cultures. And I didn't realize that until I got there. I went back to the same old thing that had worked. And while some of it surely did, I missed the mark on a lot of things. And so that that is what I learned about being an international. And I will second that, even though I'm not in a leadership position, I moved to the United States as an international student and have transformed, you know, a lot tremendously through my own international experiences. So I can only imagine, you know, what you learn at a later stage in life when you are in leadership positions and how maybe easily or perhaps how difficult that translates into role to role and country to country. But I want to follow up um, on what you just spoke about. And I have a question for you and you you perhaps might say that some of the advice could be transferable to the question that I'm about to ask you but what advice do you give to your finance staff that have never really experienced this sort of volatility in the economy well um, you know to the direct finance staff it it's something along the lines of you know they're worried about the company they're worried about our prospects for growth. Always in the back of their minds, people are worried about job cuts because that's often a reaction when you're in an economic downturn or there are signs of an economic downturn. What I try to tell people is, is that we do great work. If you do great work, um, that is the most important thing to do. So don't lose sight of that. Do great work every single day. 
at least for American Express, I reinforce just how the senior leadership of this company plans for and navigates complex, tough environments and change. And I reflect on um, examples of those that go back on our history. The company's over 170 years old. We've had our fair share of crises, both self-directed and external. Um, and I tell them how we always come out stronger on the other side. And that could be no further from the truth when I think about how the company responded to the pandemic, even before my time and what I learned about how they responded in the uh, financial crisis. Um, and it gives them a lot of, I hope to give them a lot of hope and enthusiasm. Uh, the company is positioned well, and if everyone comes in and does their part, we'll win and we'll come out of the other side stronger. That sounds like very solid advice and coming from somebody who's been through a, a tremendous deal of experience in the financial services sector. What I want to pivot to and ask you now is given your experience in financial services and what you've seen and dealt with and responded to, how would you describe the current environment um, under the current economic uncertainty? Yeah. Um this is a unique one. I, you know, I have experienced a large range of economic environments and uncertainty for sure. I guess I suppose they're all unique, but this one, gosh, has many different and arguably conflicting signals to me. You know, we're not in a credit crunch. Some would have thought maybe that was the case at the start of the pandemic, and and there were some signs of troubled waters, but it didn't seriously manifest itself. There's really not overarching concerns about liquidity post the pandemic, both at financial institutions or with customers and corporates that they, they do business with. I mean, you do have to remember that there was unprecedented levels of government stimulus injected into the economy and consumers. I think that is still and has helped produce uh, you know, some stability. The jobs report that just came out last week was fairly strong. I think it exceeded some expectations. Unemployment now is not crazy high, still a little elevated, but not crazy high. You know, I would say, however, there is an academic, an academic recession debate happening right now. And some would say that we're probably in a technical recession, given GDP has fallen for two consecutive quarters, I think is a technical definition, but it doesn't feel like a real recession to me, at least individually, and, and at least through the lens that I can look at through my company. When you think about the recent market trends, some would suggest we're in a bear market. So I'm not kind of giving you some, some signs on the other side of the scale. Add to that everything we've been hearing about and reading about regarding inflation and what the Federal Reserve Bank is doing, reacting to that. Rising interest rates, both at a pace and amount, somewhat unprecedented, unique. So it's tough to say what all this means, but I kind of put all of that through the filters and, you know, I'm no economist, I'm a controller. Tend to stick to the actuals. I do that best, but I filter all of these signals. And I would say the current environment is uniquely complex. And for financial services companies trying to predict what credit to give, what reserves to provide for those credits that you give, 
how to raise money, right? What is that going to cost you? There's a whole lot of smart people in financial services trying to predict what will happen. We do have, I'm sure you've heard in some of the other sessions, we do have an early vantage point because banks, I think, to me, are at the very beginning of the economic cycle because they facilitate commerce, lending, borrowing, and in my case, excuse me, in my case, credit card transactions where people are and corporates are spending every day. Um, you know, that is generating economic outcomes. And so we get to see early on if that is accelerating or slowing down and we dice it and slice it every way you can think about. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows if we're on the, the cusp of a big downturn? Um, we're on shaky grounds, but I, I kind of I see positive signs and I see signs uh, of concern on both sides. David, first of all, no need to apologize because I'm sure if my dog was here, he would have barked right back. And this, <laughs> no, I'm sure my dog would have barked right back and this would have turned into a little dog and dog interview. <laughs> but no need to apologize. I think it's just, um, you know, the realities of working from home. But I really like the way you answered my question. Um, I have a follow up for you because you you just said, you know, who knows what's going to happen? We're on shaky grounds. and. There are promising signs here, but I guess what I take away from that is there is a level of uncertainty and that is going to be there. But how do you translate that uncertainty into your disclosures and to investors? Is it a black and white process for you or does it take a fair amount of judgment? Well, uncertainty is uh, scattered throughout all of our disclosures, specifically in our 10Q and 10K. Uh, you just think about it, and I know we'll touch on this a little bit, the way financial institutions and bank have to reserve for future credit losses, that is all based on uncertainty, and that's a, usually a good signal on how banks are thinking about the future. Uh, but we're very careful uh, on the judgments that we make, the way we're running the business, and we disclose in full transparency you know, what the outcomes could be if our judgments don't hold true. Uh, you know, uh, outside the rules that the SEC makes us do that on, that's just good disclosure. Uh, and so that's what we try to do in various sections of our filings. You know, from time to time, we'll get some questions, but, you know, we're, we're pretty open and transparent about how we're thinking about those uncertainties, how we're, how we're planning for those. And we put a lot more context around that uh, in our earnings calls every quarter and when uh, questions come in. Um, you know, and those uncertainties, some, sometimes, you know, as time goes by, we feel a little bit better. And so we'll dial back. Sometimes uh, some uncertainties, uncertainties get a little bit more obscure. And so we'll dial them up. But we try to tune the disclosures to the exactly the way we're feeling about the business and, may, and put them out there for people to evaluate. Thank you for taking that on the fly. Um, before I go into our next question, I do want to remind the attendees that I'm having a great discussion with David here with my questions. But as much as this conversation is, uh, you know, prepared and directed by us at FEI, it's really meant to be interactive and engaging. And so I do, you know, prompt all of our attendees who are listening into our conversation to really submit questions and David will answer as many as we can get to. 
But now to shift gears, David, I want to talk about the implementation of CECL, which if I have understood correctly, is the current expected credit losses methodology that was implemented by the FASB. Um, and the implementation of CECL was especially impactful to the financial services going into the pandemic. How did the changes in people and how people work over the last two years affect your implementation plans of CECL? Yeah, another super big challenge for us. Um, it was almost a perfect storm of transformational accounting for credit reserves that we had that were required to be implemented for public companies in the same quarter of the start of the pandemic, but not the full quarter, part of the quarter. And, you know, Cecil had been out there for years that we all banks and financial institutions, anyone in the lending business uh, was working on preparing to go live with modeling scenario analysis. Uh, what it meant to your disclosures, an incredible amount of preparation leading up to the go live quarter. You know, those scenarios that we planned for, we tried to simulate uh, the outcomes of what credit reserves would be needed in, in good times and bad, but surely not the way the economist predicted the economy would be looking in the quarter that we went live in a severe downturn. And that is the kind of the macroeconomic environment, which is a key, very important and significant input <clears throat> into the calculation and outcome of the credit reserves that we need. Because remember, for those of you that don't know, Cecil changed the way we view credit reserves to be more forward looking as opposed to the incurred loss model that existed for many, many years prior to that was really as a balance sheet date and backwards looking. So for the first time, we had to start thinking forward uh, and we had the pandemic right on our heels. Super challenging. Um, and it was already going to be challenging, challenging to implement Cecil no matter what anyway, even in strong economic times. So now you're facing this. So, you know, like everyone else, uh, we weren't together. <laughs> we were all trying to figure out how to get our colleagues comfortable working virtually. But we had to double down on our collaboration tools and the technology the company gives us to do our work remotely and work through it. Um, we had about a month to react to this because it was just the start of the pandemic and working through the outcomes, the critical judgments, the key assumptions that we had to think through uh, and the validation, it was super tough, but actually quite effective. Why? Well, thankfully, American Express has great uh, collaboration tools, like many companies I'm sure that you work for. We didn't have people commuting, so we actually had some more time to work together. <laughs> Uh, as a blessing and a curse. In this case, it happened to be a blessing um, because that gave us, that gave people time, more time to focus and collaborate. Um, we worked through it, but the first couple of quarters out of the gate, it was quite rocky uh, in terms of the results and explanation of those and trying to make sense of what these CECL models were telling us, the reserves we needed when we were staring down something that was unprecedented. It was tough, but we got there. So I have a follow-up to this question. And what I want to understand is, are there any other standards out there that take a similar amount of effort to implement? What kind of resources is the adoption of ESG disclosures taking in the controllership? Sure. 
TPSG uh, for the last bit. Yeah, there, there were two other very big standards that call them the big three FASB put out uh, that were implemented pre-CISO. One was revenue recognition, transform the way companies report and record revenue with their customers. And the lease standard was the second one. Uh, the lease standard for us was not a big deal because we have uh, some leased assets, but nothing uh, anywhere as complex as a retailer, say Walmart, for example, or a restaurant company. Those companies had, uh, I can, the, the lease implementation, similar to what banks had to do for Cecil in terms of transformation. Everyone had to deal with the revenue recognition standard uh, in the same way. Uh, and I would put this one, at least for Cecil, right up there in terms of complexity, resources, uh, the time you needed to evaluate what you're going to do, the judgments you needed to make, in some cases, the policy elections you would need to articulate and conclude on. All three were equally complex to me, although I do think it impacted different companies differently depending on their business model. <laughs> ESG is an interesting one, too. Um, because as many of you know, the SEC proposed um, transformational ESG disclosures that would come into companies 10K, 10Ks beginning in 2023, kind of ratchet up from there in terms of the types of assurance against those climate-related disclosures. That's, that's what it was all about. It's the first time ESG disclosures would be required in a 10K or an SEC filing, although many do voluntarily uh well, not the, there are some requirements that existed before this on certain climate-related disclosures. Those were issued about 10 years ago. These substantially have um, um, moved the needle on these. And those disclosures um, are certainly going to impact the controller's role. Uh, and I think, you know, depending on what ultimately gets finalized and published, and we'll see, I, I would expect in October we would hear back from the SEC on their proposal and any changes they're going to make and, and most likely an effective date. Control organizations are going to have to get involved uh, because these are going to be disclosures that are both in MDNA and in the footnotes and eventually need assurance. They're going to fall under ICFR. So where before controllers were not necessarily maybe completely involved in ESG disclosures, especially in sustainability reports the company just publishes on their websites, it's going to become uh, much more meaningful and important going forward. And on the topic of the evolution or the change that's coming in the controllership's role, there's a topic that I think is impacting the controllership function. And if I'm wrong, I'll open you up to correct me. But what I want to talk about now is kind of the war for talent that's happening in the accounting profession. How do you see this issue and what do you consider it to be um, the possible solution? I agree with you. There's a war for talent. The reasons why, I think if you line 10 people up, you'll get 10 different answers. I'll give you mine. Although I don't know if I have a solution, but I think I have an approach to best position you to win in this marketplace. We have a new way of working in corporate America, largely. And for most companies, that means flexibility in the days you come in, whether you're fully virtual, we're all at home today. 
and less geographic boundary lines from what we used to know and respect in the past. I think this has allowed the accounting professionals to really expand their aperture on the types of companies, the nature of the companies, the role, the roles that they're interested in, uh, to look for different growth opportunities across different industries, well beyond a commutable distance from where they live today. And in many cases, they don't even need to relocate. That is a, I've been using the term size, that is a seismic shift in the way people think about career planning that, that really uh, didn't exist before. You were kind of uh, geographically bound to the city you lived in and, and the range of companies that were offering roles in those cities. Yeah, did virtual and hybrid roles, more virtual exist pre-pandemic? Yeah, but they weren't the predominant discussion point when you were looking for a role. It was kind of like, can I commute to a physical location? That's changed now. Um, and colleagues have much more uh, opportunities in front of them. In fact, you know, the whole U.S. is potentially their hunting ground here. In companies, at least when I look for talent now, I'm looking well beyond the New York Metroplex area for certain types of roles. I've never been able to do that before. So my talent pool now is widely expanded. Uh, I think you, you bundle all of those up together and I kind of consider this maybe the great reshuffling, uh, not the great recession, but I think there's a shuffling going on. Will it stop? Maybe. Will we ever get back to our pre-pandemic kind of historical attrition rates? Don't know. Um, one would think that the equilibrium would refine its spot, but it's going to be a lot easier to go look for new roles if you really want to. So what are we doing in American Express? What am I doing in the controllership organization? A couple of things. We have what I believe is a compelling and attractive, we call it a colleague value proposition. That's more than just the role and pay. Uh, it's And it's more than just flexible work arrangements. It's everything the company has to offer a colleague that wants to work or to have a, a, an enriching and rewarding career experience. It's evolved over the last two years for sure. Uh, and we've spent a lot of time looking at it uh, across the senior leadership levels of the company. I think we've got a good solid one. I think that will win the day. That will win in this marketplace. Uh, but you can't rest. You've got to always be adjusting and modifying. You've got to be pushing yourselves to think about talent differently. And I think if you do all of that, and you don't get too stuck in the ways of the past, which we know worked, like we're all learning this together, you'll win. I will have to admit that that's the first time I've seen an incredibly positive outlook on the great resignation. I think you coining the term the great reshuffling really um, shows me your mentality of, you know, the glass being half full instead of the glass being half empty. I love that. Um, but I have a follow up question, and this relates to one of at least from my understanding and my perspective of the great resignation is a lot of people have, you know, been scouring for greater opportunities, more flexibility, more pay. How do you communicate the importance of paying more for accounting talent, especially when this is a role that's been traditionally non-revenue generating? 
Well, um, there's a whole range of roles that don't directly generate revenue that have to support a company's operations and functions. But I can tell you, um, I would flip it around and say, you need a strong controller's function for cost avoidance. And cost avoidance comes from not complying with disclosure requirements, rules and regulations, especially in a bank. Uh, they can come to you in nasty fines. You know, I think about what we do as our core is protecting the value of the brand. If I do my job and my team does their job well, we're protecting value. Um, and, you know, that goes a long ways into producing solid revenue for companies because as soon as your brand gets damaged, your revenues suffer. Uh, so I don't look at uh, paying for accountants as uh, needing to generate revenue. I, I um, indirectly through great work and a strong control environment, uh, ensure revenue continues to grow because the brand is strong. My part in it. Yeah, pay is changing. People are wanting more. Everyone wants more. Um, if the market demands uh, shift, then this is one of those things I said before, you have to shift as well. Uh, and you have to react. And that's what we're doing. That's what many companies are doing. I think the companies that don't do that and get 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 stuck in their pay scales, if it is really dramatic, then they're gonna lose. And they may be okay with that up to a point. They may be okay with it indefinitely, but you know, you gotta stay relevant, you gotta stay current, um, and you gotta stay at market generally. And that's what we try to do when we do that through the entire compensation packages that we offer. And we do that through the colleague value proposition. Good follow up. Thank you. And on the topic of um, people considering shifting um, positions, roles, companies, what do you have to say to individuals who are considering a move into financial services without a previous experience in this field? I would say go for it. <laughs> you know, Everyone starts at some point with no experience. It's easier at the lower levels, a little harder at the higher levels, but I would say go for it. Here's how you do that, right? Do your research about the company and the culture. Um, figure out what complementary experiences and skills you have and harvest them as you approach an interview or, or a company that you want to talk to. Um, read the company's public disclosures. It's easy for me to say as a controller, as a deputy controller of the company, but read them. The 10Q, the 10K, the company's proxy statement, and you brought it up and I'll underscore it, the company's sustainability report. That all is good information to know uh, and, and will show that you're invested in under, really understanding the company and you don't come in uh, just wanting to know about the role. You know, for the accountants out there, hopefully we have some, dial in to the accounting policies, the critical accounting estimate section, the key footnotes, because if you're hired, you'll be doing work supporting those either directly or indirectly. So know about them, be educated. You know, the other thing I would say is, and I see this a lot in talking to prospects, you know, you have to sometimes be willing to take a step back in order to take a giant step forward. So I wouldn't get overly worried about titles and levels, although they matter. 
you know, as you look at all different companies, different companies have different way to title things. Don't don't have that be the sole reason why you don't uh, try to learn more and go for it. Uh, but I've seen many people come in, um, you know, take a little bit step back in their career and then just charge ahead uh, because they're uh, utterly successful, super smart, wicked smart, and have just gone on, at least in our company, to do great, great things. Um, the last thing I would say is, you know, the career is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so just because you may choose financial services doesn't mean you have to stay there either. Uh, it's probably not earth shattering to anyone, and especially in the times in the last question and discussion we just had. But if you love it, like I do, you kind of don't want to go anywhere else. You know, they say um, you take one step forward, or is it you take two steps back, one step forward? I think it's yeah. something along those lines, but I think it touches upon your philosophy um, that you just brought up. But with on the topic of philosophy, I kind of want to nitpick at yours a little bit, uh, specifically about the use of technology in accounting and financial reporting space. Um, what is your philosophy in this in these fields in this industry? For example, on issues like artificial intelligence and RPA, and then my follow up or my lead on question to that is where do you see technology taking American Express in the next five years specifically within the finance function? Great question. My favorite topic that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, I have to say. <clears throat> you know, technology is amazing and I, and, and it, um, it energizes me. I'm dating myself a bit, but you know, less than 10 years ago, most of us in the finance function, and especially the controller's functions, the best piece of technology we had at our disposal was Excel. We thought that was the best thing, and we did amazing things with it in finance. We built models, we did analytics, we did complicated VBA. I mean, we built Excel to do amazing things. You know, but we're well past the next major point of evolution with technology in my mind. Uh, and it has will and should move finance, the finance forward from a transactional organization to an analytical one. You know, my mindset on this, Shivani, is let machines work and people think. It's really as simple as that, even the accountants. You know, so we found that deploying artificial intelligence, which we have some use cases live today, RPA, robotics process automation. We have bots doing work for us today in controllers, plus other automation tools. And there are more out there. You sometimes can get overwhelmed by the number of automation tools, but we have also stitched together AI, RPA, and other automation tools to create a suite of capabilities. It has really transformed and enabled us to step out of the details and add value in ways we never thought were possible. Going back to your question of not generating revenue. Complementary to this, and I think equally impactful to finance, is that many companies are uplifting their core processing systems with better technology on a different technology stack. 
we've been able to do, and I would and I would suggest everyone try to do this, is have a seat at the table when those major uplifts are happening. Finance needs to be there as those upstream core systems are improving so you can get your requirements in and figure out, do you have an opportunity to ingest data into your financial ecosystem in a much different way? And if you can, that will give you the ability to transform the way you work. That has been the case uh, with us in a couple of our core systems. And when we combine that piece of work, and I'll give you a quick example in a second, along with our finance-led, citizen-led, finance-led automation, this is automation that I can do on my own. I don't need the help from technology or anybody else in the company. It's been a real game changer because we're not transactional anymore. We are a little bit less, way less. And we're able to make sense of the results and be analytical. And I'll just give you one quick example. We have one core system in the company that used to batch up all the transactions at the end of the day and send us one big batch for processing into the financial systems. That system was overhauled and it now has the ability to stream data to us every 30 seconds. Well, that gave us an entirely new way to think about how to consume that. I didn't need to wait to the end of the day. Now, to post a batch and see it the next day, I can do it real time in the middle of the day. Game changer. And I think this is just the start because the pace of technology is changing dramatically and finance has to be on the cutting edge of this as well. So my follow-up to you is a really interesting question that I am very personally excited to get your answer on, but how do you balance the investments in financial technology with the investments in people? Um, We think about them somewhat differently. I mean, I think we invest in our staff to build the best team and we set multi-year long-term goals and resources around that to drive our long-term strategic vision. Whatever the level of resources are, uh, that is what we set our sights and targets to do. But when we think about technology and investing in the right technology, certainly marries up with how our people are gonna use technology and what they're gonna do with it. Right, but we make a case for a long-term technology roadmap that also has a North Star to it. And to do that, you have to be strategic and paint a picture of what, at least in control, we have painted the picture of what we think technology will enable us over time. And one of those, one of those uh, key ideas that we have that we've been working on is moving to a real-time close every single day of the month instead of waiting for the month end to happen and a close cycle to happen. If we use technology, right, why can't we close every day? Don't know if we'll get there. Uh, There's certainly signs that it's possible, but it's only made possible because of the automation that we put in place in the past. How our colleagues, those that we invested in, are deploying that technology and the technology we think we need in the future. You gotta bundle all of that together when you think about where you're investing and what your long-term strategic roadmap looks like. And if you do that well and right, it can be really transformational. 
David, we are sadly coming to the close of the end of our conversation and we're going to open up for Q&A. Um, but before I ask you the last question that I had prepared for you, you talked, you said one thing and it's really stuck with me because it reminded me a lot about um, something one of my career mentors had mentioned to me when I was dealing with imposter syndrome and you kind of said, you know, find a seat at the table and absorb. And um, the advice that I had gotten was, you know, when you find that seat at the table, just sit down and don't question it because half of the people around you don't know how they found that seat either. <laughs> so kind of just sit down, it. take it just all in. Yeah, it's yeah. a phrase I hadn't heard before. It's there, grab yeah. it. Exactly. And don't question it because everyone else is also, I'm pretty sure, thinking about how they found that seat and they're all in the same boat. But that was a piece of advice, career advice. And now I want to ask you, what advice do you have for senior financial executives when it comes to managing virtual teams and leading through challenging times? Yeah. Um, I'm really thinking about the last two years here for sure. And I certainly didn't get it all right. Uh, every company is different. Everyone approached this differently. Everyone had different ideas. Not all wrong, not all right. But when I step back and reflect on the last years, it really boils down to four things to me. Lead, listen, learn, and relead, or lead again. We had to start out of the gate when everyone went virtual leading, leading something, and we had an idea and we let it. We had to listen to what our colleagues had to say openly and without bias. Uh, and we had to uh, really reflect on that to make sure and figure out what we needed to learn from so that we, could, we knew what we needed to change. And then once we had all that figured out, it was time to lead again. And that's kind of where we're at now as hybrid has come back into play. We were all virtual and now hybrid, and now we're kind of leading again and iterating together. This is one of those that can't be leader-led or leader-decisioned. My personal view is if, if you take that approach, you're gonna miss the mark. Uh, you, you need real input and you gotta be able to listen to it and learn from it. That's the approach I took. I didn't start there. <laughs> That's where I got to when it was said and done. And I feel really good about where we're at with our colleagues now. You know, I will say listening to you talk, you make um, leadership sound very, very easy. <laughs> and I'm sure that a lot of people on the call have appreciated our conversation here today. That does wrap up the questions that I had prepared for you. So now I'm going to open the floor up for some Q&A that have come in from the attendees. There's one. Um, so as they trickle in, I'll get started. But there's one here and it asks, are you seeing in the United States that people are using their credit cards more? and getting close to maximum limits? Yeah, uh, whoever asked that, good question. Um, we are seeing people generally use their credit cards more, uh, but it's not because of financial strains. It's because of e-commerce and the way people transact with merchants nowadays. Uh, big box retailer, Amazon, you name it, right? A lot of people's wallets is online versus offline. And so we're seeing volumes in credit card spending 
continue to rise because it's a lot easier tra to transact from your sofa or from your laptop, wherever you're sitting. Um, not so much um, the second part of your question on maxing, maxing out limits. Uh, for the customers we serve, we feel really good uh, about the utilization of their cards. This is really more to me about uh, a, sh a shift in the way you buy the things that are important to you. You see that in consumers, you see that in corporates. Uh, even the last six, seven months, return to travel. How many of you are, have pent up demand, we've called it, to get out and travel? And you're putting that on your credit card, I would probably suggest. Um, that's where we see it coming from. And that's good, it's good volume, it's good spend. So there's one more. And they're asking, what are the biggest indicators you look for in collections for watchouts, and how closely do executive mo executives monitor these trends? Uh, by collections, I think you mean by um, people that either past due or potentially past due. Yeah, I, I'm not close enough to this to give you a, a very uh, solid answer, but what I can tell you, like in many big financial institutions, very strong uh, credit teams that uh, have many different signals and indices and metrics that they look for um, to look for look for uh, opportunities here. Um, they're obviously monitored very very closely. The health of any bank's assets, those earning assets, and in our case, credit card receivables and loans. <laughs> are the lifeblood of the company. So they've got to be cared for uh, and they've got to be monitored. Uh, and that's exactly what we do. And um, it's kind of ingrained in the DNA and how you run, especially a credit card company. You always are monitoring your assets and the health of those assets. Great question, but I, I just, I can't give you the specifics because I'm just not close to it. Thank you for taking that on regardless, but that does bring us to the close of our conversation. And I am really grateful for your time, David, your remarks, your insights. I've had a lovely conversation and I'm sure our attendees have feel confident to say that they've been able to walk away from this conversation knowing more than they did coming into it. Um, any final remarks before I pass it back over to Boyana to close us out? Great discussion. Uh, thank you. Covered a whole range of things. Um, it was a pleasure being here. I appreciate it.